This morning, we will be looking at Ezra chapter 7, and we'll be walking through the whole chapter. Now, this particular chapter is important in the book because it introduces us to the man after whom the book is named, right? We've been walking through a book that goes by the name Ezra, and yet we have not quite yet met anyone who goes by the name Ezra. We've heard about Jeremiah. We've heard about Zerubbabel. We've heard about Jeshua and Zechariah and Haggai, but no one named Ezra, not yet. It's kind of like being at a party and the person that you came with to the party has been raving about their friend, right? You gotta meet my friend Ezra. He's the best. You're gonna love him. But by this point, the party's like halfway over. Things are kind of winding down. It's getting late. And you're starting to look at your watch. Like, I've been waiting to meet this guy. Is he ever going to show up? Doesn't he know what time it is? Well, here, now that we've gotten to chapter 7, Ezra strolls into the party, fashionably late, and we finally get a chance to meet him. And it's not a moment too soon, because just think about it. There has been a lot that has happened to bring us to this point in the book. Remember how the book begins. It begins with a second exodus. God's people are released from captivity, and they are brought back to the promised land so that they can rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But of course, it doesn't take long for them to run into some major problems. God's people face opposition. Over and over, they are intimidated and coerced. And yet, over and over, God shows himself to be faithful. He makes a way for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And because of that, because the temple is rebuilt, you would think that this would be like the end of the story, right? Mission accomplished. This feels maybe a little bit like happily ever after. But that's not the case, unfortunately. Because in about 50 years' time, the people of Israel have reverted back to their old ways. We're going to see this more toward the end of the book, but spoiler alert, after a little while of being back in the land, after a little while of having the temple rebuilt, God's people begin to mingle with the peoples of the land, the pagan nations around them. And this is significant because remember who Israel is supposed to be. Remember their calling. They were called by God to be distinct from all the other nations of the earth. They were set apart for a covenant with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But now they were neglecting that calling. They were disregarding that covenant. And so what does God do? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't get fed up, right? He doesn't turn his back on his promise. He doesn't turn his back on his people, even though really, if you think about it, he has every right to do that, but it's not what he does. No, instead, what God does is he sends a man. 
When God has something on his mind, when God has something he wants to say, something he wants to accomplish, this is what he does. This is his MO. He sends a man. So let's look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7 to find out more about who this man is. These 10 verses provide us with sort of a, like a profile of Ezra. So let's read them together. Verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sareah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Moraeth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Buckai, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. All right, the hard part's done. Verse six. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So let's say you've just seen Ezra come into the party. You finally have a chance to meet this guy that you've been hearing so much about. And so you walk over to him and you introduce yourself. And then you ask that sort of like the default question that we all ask when we're wanting to get somebody, get, get to know somebody for the first time. You ask, so Ezra, tell me about your life. What is it that you do? Well, I would imagine that verses 1 through 10 here, they're pretty similar to how Ezra might answer that question. So today what I want to do is I want to look at three questions about the man after whom this book is named, three questions about Ezra. Here they are. Number one, who is Ezra? Number two, what is Ezra's mission? And number three, why is Ezra the right man for this mission? So far as I can tell, these three questions help us to get to the heart of what's happening here in chapter 7. But not only that, I think these three questions will actually set us up to understand what happens in the remainder of the book as well. So let's look to the text and carefully search things out to find answers to these three questions, starting with the first. Who is Ezra? Who is this man? 
that God has raised up to be sent? Well, the text actually clues us into at least three things. First, it tells us that Ezra was a priest. At the very outset of chapter 7, we're shown that Ezra's lineage can be traced all the way back to Aaron. That's what we learn in verse 5, that Ezra is a descendant of Aaron, the chief priest. Now, remember who Aaron was. Aaron was the brother of Moses. So what this basically shows us is that Ezra is actually related to Moses himself. He is a branch in that Moses-Aaron family tree that looms so large in the history of Israel. And the reason that this is important, the reason that this matters is because it establishes Ezra's pedigree. Ezra is not some rando who decided to become a priest because he he thought it sounded like a good idea. No, that's not the case. Ezra is legit. Ezra is Ezra being God's man for this moment in time. This is generations in the making. And the reason, and, and that's the point, isn't it? That just as God raised up this man, sorry, let me start that sentence again. That's the point, isn't it? That just as God raised up his man for the first exodus, that would be Moses, he is now raising up his man, For the second exodus, he's raising up this priest, Ezra, to lead his people. This is a second Moses for a second exodus. One commentator notes that really, Ezra's priestly lineage tells us more about God than it does about Ezra. So the fact that Ezra is a priest in the line of Aaron, what this really is, what it really shows is that God is faithful to his people. Second, the text tells us that not only is Ezra a priest, he's also a scribe. Verse 6 says that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had, had given. So not only do we know Ezra's lineage, we also know his craft. As a scribe, Ezra's life work, the work of his life is to study the Torah. You might say that he was an expert in what we know as the the first five books of our Bibles, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And as a scribe, Ezra lived and breathed these five books. The text tells us that when it came to his craft, Ezra was skilled. That's how it describes him. This speaks to his experience. This speaks to his diligence in his work as a scribe. We'll talk more about this later on in the sermon, but for now it's enough for us to see that Ezra demonstrated an outstanding commitment to the study of the Torah. We see this in verse 10 where it says that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So just notice that for Ezra, this was not just like a day job, right? Ezra is not punching a clock here. No, Ezra had set his heart on this. The idea in verse 10 is that it is Ezra's all-consuming desire to search the Torah. He had devoted himself to knowing, to following, and to teaching the law. Ezra is a model scribe. Third, Ezra the priest and Ezra the scribe is also presented in the text as a delegate of the Persian Empire. Now, of the three things we learn about Ezra here, this is probably the most surprising, like a Hebrew priest working with the Persian Empire. 
Right? That's, that's probably not something we're going, we're going to expect when we think of Ezra, but this fact cannot be overlooked. Ezra has an alliance. He has a partnership with King Artaxerxes. This is hinted at at the end of verse 6, where it says that the king of Persia granted to Ezra all that he asked. But where this really comes through, where we really start to see this taking shape is starting in verse 11. Let's read verse 11 through verse 16 very quickly. It says this. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes in Israel. So there we see the text re-emphasizing how Ezra had devoted himself to the law. Starting in verse 12, we see what the letter says. It says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. So the priest here, or or I'm sorry, the, the, the king of Persia, not the priest, the king of Persia gives substantial aid to Ezra. But notice that Ezra, with the law of God in his hand, also has an assignment from the king of Persia. Verse 14 tells us this, that Ezra is sent to make inquiries about Jerusalem and Judah. And really, this brings us to our second question about Ezra. We've seen who he is. He's a priest, he's a scribe, he's a delegate. Now let's look at the nature of Ezra's mission. That's the second question we need to answer. What is Ezra's mission? What is it that he is called to do? Well, look back at the text with me, verses 21 through 26. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. So so the king is talking to the people who live near Jerusalem or live around Jerusalem, and he tells them this. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or or other servants of this house of God. Now in verse 25, the king is going to start addressing Ezra again. He says, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. 
Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So if we're looking at what Ezra's mission is, based on the verses we just read, if we're looking at that, I would put it, based on these verses, I would put it this way. I would say that Ezra's mission is to lead a renewal of comprehensive devotion to God's law in Jerusalem. He's leading a renewal of comprehensive devotion to the law of God. And this renewal that Ezra is leading It consists of two things. The first thing it involves is the law being applied to the worship of God. So Ezra is called to make sure that the people in Israel, the people in Jerusalem, are worshiping God in the ways that he has ordained. That's what we see in verse 23. What is decreed by the God of heaven for his house, Artaxerxes says, let it be done in full. So Artaxerxes recognizes something here. He recognizes that the temple in Jerusalem is at the heart of the worship of God's people. And so he says, make sure that the the, the worship that is offered in that temple, make sure that it is done by the book, like down to the letter. This is why Artaxerxes is giving Ezra all sorts of resources, right? Ezra has money to buy animals for sacrifice, He's being given temple vessels. Artaxerxes makes sure that anyone who serves in the temple, right, the priests and the gatekeepers and the singers, these people are not to be encumbered by tribute or custom or toll. I mean, Ezra is, is clearly, clearly being set up for success here because the most important part of his mission, the most important part of what he is setting out to do is he is to lead the people of Israel to worship their God according to his laws. But there's also another important part of this. Ezra is also being given authority to apply the law of God to Israel's social order. And he is to start with the governing officials. Artaxerxes says in verse 25, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, right there he's he's referring to the law, the Torah, says, according to this law, you are to appoint magistrates, judges, and so forth, who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. And those who don't know the law, you are to instruct them. You are to teach them about the law. So Ezra is going back to Jerusalem to institute a social order that reflects what is revealed in the law of God. He's told to appoint a government that will honor the Torah. And for anyone who disobeys the laws of God, anyone who disobeys the Torah, they are to be punished. But verse 26 is is telling us, it says that violation of God's law is punishable by some pretty serious things here, right? It's punishable by things like banishment, imprisonment. You can have the things that you own, you can have them confiscated from you. Most seriously, you could be sentenced to the death penalty. I mean, this this letter that Artaxerxes has sent to Ezra, this has some real teeth to it, right? This is not like a weak sauce letter. This is legit. Ezra has been given major authority by Artaxerxes because Ezra has a major job to do. And to be quite honest, if I were in Ezra's shoes, I've got to say that 
I might start to feel like a little bit overwhelmed by this, right? Because if, if you think about it, like I wonder if, if, if Ezra had to have this sense that now the weight of an entire nation, like the well-being of an entire nation of people is now resting on his shoulders. Like he has a big job to do. This is not a small thing. This, this, is, this is major. This is not an easy task. Ezra is being called to do a hard thing. So we wouldn't blame him for feeling like a little bit intimidated by that. But interestingly enough, Ezra is not intimidated. He's not intimidated at all. Throughout this entire passage, there is no whiff of intimidation on Ezra's part. He is undaunted. And this leads us to ask the third question about Ezra. Why is he the right man for this mission? Why is Ezra God's man for this moment in time? Now, what's so significant about this particular question is that it leads us to consider what I think is the single most important thing about Ezra. There is nothing more important about the man Ezra, who he is as a man. There's nothing more important about him than how this third question gets answered. And the answer to the question is that Ezra is a man of unwavering confidence in the providence and blessing of God. We see this over and over again, that Ezra is a man of profound faith. The reason that Ezra is the right person to do this incredibly hard thing is not ultimately because of his family of origin. It's not because he is a learned man. It's not because he is well regarded by King Artaxerxes. All those things are significant, no doubt, but they are not the determining factor. No, the ultimate reason Ezra was appointed to this mission is because the God of Israel, by his free and sovereign grace, had placed within the heart of Ezra the saving faith that saves all people. Ezra was saved by grace through faith. He has faith to believe in the promises of God. And Ephesians 2 tells us that this faith that Ezra has It is a gift. It's a gift from God so that none of us, not even the best among us, not even the Ezra's among us can boast in ourselves, but we can only boast in the gracious hand of our God. That's exactly what we see Ezra doing over and over. Look with me at verses 27 and 28, the last two verses of the chapter. After Ezra has learned of the contents of King Artaxerxes' letter to him, He responds, starting in verse 27, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. Ezra says, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. He says, I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So that that statement there in that final verse, you've probably noticed that that has been the refrain of this passage. It's been the refrain of chapter 7. Verse 6, verse 9, and now verse 28. In all of these verses, we see that Ezra's confidence is being sourced by one thing and one thing only. 
that is being sourced by the good hand of his God that rested upon him. And that's really what I want you to see today. I want you to notice a connection that there is a direct relationship between Ezra's confidence in the hand of God and Ezra's devotion to the law of God. This this connection is actually made for us explicitly in verses 9 and 10. If you look back at those verses, at the end of of verse 9, it makes the statement that the good hand of Ezra's God was on him. And then in verse 10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. You can see that connection there. Now, now don't get me wrong. Don't mishear what I'm saying. Okay, I'm not saying that Ezra has somehow earned God's favor by his good works. Not by a long shot. We've already established that Ezra's faith is purely a gift from above. He didn't earn it. However, however, the way that Ezra's faith gets applied in the circumstances of his life was impacted by what he had devoted his life to. Let's not miss this fact, right? Let let this not be lost on us that all of Ezra's attention, all of his energy, all of his desire had been channeled toward seeking and searching out the law of God. And this had a profound effect on how Ezra experienced his faith in this particular situation. And I think the same connection could easily be said of us this morning. That's the main thing I'm driving at in the sermon today. This is the big idea. When you are called to do hard things, you will have eyes to see the hand of God to the extent that you have devoted yourself to the things of God. One of the guarantees of the Christian life, one of the things that you can bank on is that at some point, God will call you to do something challenging, he will call you to do something difficult. We see this in scripture over and over again. Just think about Moses at the burning bush. God tells Moses, I am calling you out of this wilderness and I'm gonna send you back to Egypt and through you, I will set my people free. And how does Moses respond to this? Like, what does he immediately start doing? He immediately starts giving God a list of reasons why he is not the right man for this job. Because for Moses, the very idea that he would lead an exodus seemed impossible, right? He he could not imagine that there would be a way for the people of Israel to be liberated from the iron fist of Pharaoh, let alone that he would be involved. Not only was Moses the reject of Pharaoh's household, Not only had he been banished from Egypt for murder, Moses also notes that he had a speech impediment, right? He he says, I am slow of speech, and you want me to do what? Are you crazy? And yet God wanted Moses, out of all people, to march into the Egyptian throne room and stand in front of the most powerful man in the known world and make a speech demanding that people of Israel be liberated. So let's not fool ourselves here. We can't get around this, right? God calls weak and powerless people, right? Weak and powerless people like me. Weak and powerless people like you and like Moses. God calls people like us to do things that seem 
impossible. And he does this for a reason. He does this so that through our weakness, right, through our powerlessness, his powerfulness and his glory can be made known, be exalted. What we see in Ezra is that when that call comes, right, when the, when the calling to do hard things lands on your doorstep, you can receive that calling with confidence. You can receive that calling with confidence. You can be ready for it. And listen, I'm not talking about confidence in ourselves, confidence in our ability. No, I am talking about confidence in the good hand of God that is resting upon us. And so the question that lies before us today is where does this kind of confidence come from? How can we, like Ezra, have faith that the hand of the Lord our God is upon us? Well, as I've already mentioned, ultimately, this is a gift, right? The presence of faith in your life and in my life, this is something that we can only receive through grace. But our experience of faith, well, in some ways, that's a little different. Because even though our experience of faith is still a gift of God's grace, it is, it, our experience of faith on a day-to-day basis is something that could be made better or worse, weaker or stronger, by the types of things that we devote our lives to. So here's a principle for the Christian life that I think we all need to keep in mind. The rhythms of life that we form end up forming us. The rhythms, the habits of your life that you have formed, they have a way of forming you. The things that you devote your time to, your energy, your attention to, each day, these things are having a profound effect on you spiritually whether you realize it or not. And this can be the case for better or for worse. So what I want to do in the time that we have left is I want to talk about the rhythms of your life. The book of Jude in verse 20 tells us to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. So let's talk about the kind of rhythms that help us do that, that help us build ourselves up in the faith. As we've been introduced to Ezra, we actually see that his example inspires three everyday rhythms that form a life of devotion to the things of God. Three everyday rhythms that form a life of devotion. Let's look at the first rhythm. Immerse your heart in scripture through continual daily exposure. We see this in Ezra for sure. Remember, he had set his heart to study God's word. He was devoted to the scriptures. And we say the same. Right? Can we say that we have a heart to search out what God has revealed to us in his word? You know, the English Bible that you brought with you to church today, whether it is a physical copy or whether it is an app on your phone, that English Bible is comprised of 1,189 chapters spread across 66 books. It took about 2,000 years to write. It was written by multiple authors living in a wide range of circumstances. But of all those chapters found in all those books by all those authors, the longest chapter in your Bible is a love poem. It's a love poem found in Psalm 119. 
Now just, just listen for a second to some of the things that are said in this poem, and you'll see why I call it a love poem, okay? It says things like, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I delight in your statutes. Behold, I long for your precepts. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. The psalmist says, I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And listen, that's just for starters, right? I, I could go on and on, but, but you get the idea. The psalmist, much like Ezra, has set his heart to know the word of God. And listen, I, I got to be honest. When I slow down and read Psalm 119, really think about it, I find it a little bit unsettling. I find it unsettling because, man, what a contrast you see when you read this psalm and then look up across the landscape of the American church. There has been a radical decline of biblical literacy that has taken place over the past 50 or 60 years. And I don't think it's a stretch at all. I don't think I'm being dramatic when I say that biblical illiteracy is a cancer that is eating away at the soul of the American church. There are many reasons why we could point to for, for why this has happened. We might take a look at our use of social media or our consumption of things like podcasts and round-the-clock news or, or the constant streaming of entertainment into our lives that has made it virtually impossible for us to give sustained attention to anything. We might point to the fact that churches over the past several decades have reduced the preaching of God's word to a 25-minute inspirational talk. Whatever the factors may be, the real underlying reason, the root cause is this. That we do not desire the word. And this lack of desire has coalesced to produce a generation of shallow Bible readers, if they even bother with the Bible at all. It has produced what I like to call verse of the day Christianity. Where you pull up the Bible app on your phone, you put eyes on the verse of the day for a few seconds, and then you move on to the next thing. Bible app, read the verse, shut it off, go to Instagram. That's the extent of many people's interaction with the Bible. Now listen, I'm not saying that the verse of the day can't have any value for your life. But what I am saying is that it will never be enough to counteract the deluge of triviality and garbage that you encounter in our culture on a daily basis. 
And I think that we might be tempted here at Emmaus to comfort ourselves with the thought that this couldn't possibly affect us, right? We have a reputation as a church for being serious about the Bible, for being serious about theology and doctrine, and praise God for that. I'm so glad that Emmaus is that way. But if I had to guess, like if I had to put my finger on the pulse of this church, I would say that verse of the day, Christianity, is more prevalent among us than we care to admit. And so for that reason, I want to remind you today of what you have been given in this book. Think of what it is that you actually possess. What is being held out before you today from these pages is wisdom. It is light and life for you. In the scriptures, there is waiting for you an encounter with the living God. He has promised to meet you in the pages of this book. So my encouragement for you today, Emmaus, is take up and read. Study this book. Devour it. Meditate on it. Commit its contents to your memory. Devote yourself to the scriptures with all your heart and mind and strength. Because through this word, what God is doing is he is taking you by the hand and leading you into deeper communion with himself. For this reason, the scriptures are living and active. They are sharper than any two-edged sword. They are divinely breathed out and are therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be equipped fully for every good work. You lack nothing because you have an open Bible. So if you want to thrive as a Christian, if you want to be able to to recognize all the ways that God's good hand is prospering you in this season of your life with all of its ups and downs, then immerse yourself in the scriptures. Immerse yourself in the scriptures. What about you parents? Moms and dads, don't you want to see your children prosper in the faith? Don't you want to see them grow up to be men and women of God? And expose them to the scriptures. Read the Bible to them. Talk to them about what it says. Teach them and model for them that blessing follows the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf will not wither. And all that he does prospers. And yet, even though our Christian life has prospered by Scripture alone, we are not alone in our exposure to the Scriptures. This brings me to the second rhythm I want to invite you to consider. I want to invite you to invest your energy and resources in the word-saturated life of the church. I recently came across a story about a pastor who Every Sunday after he would read his sermon text, he would pause and then he would quote from the prophecy of Isaiah where it says, the grass withers, flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And one Sunday after service was over, this pastor was approached by a young kid in the church who was kind of known for being a punk. This kid is kind of known for being a, a difficult kid. And the kid says, pastor, I got a question. 
And the pastor says, okay, go for it. And he says, why is it that every time after you read from the Bible, you say the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever? Why do you say that every week? And the pastor quite wisely looked that kid in the eye and he said, that's why. That's why. In his own way, this kid was showing that there is something about the repetition of the church gathering each week about, or around the word of God. This has a profound effect on you. It has a way of, of, of getting under your skin. This is why one of, the, one of the essential marks of a true gospel church is that we as a community are gladly submitted to the authority of the scriptures as they are read, taught, and applied. What this means for the life of Emmaus is that there should be a palpable sense of this at every level of our congregation that, that we desire to bring everything we're doing and everything we are into alignment with what is revealed in the Bible. This is something, of course, we see in Ezra. Yes, he is fiercely devoted to the scriptures, but never in isolation, never on his own. We get clued into this at the very end of chapter 7, where when he, he receives word from Artaxerxes, what does Ezra do? He says, I gathered up leading men from Israel to go with me. So just notice what's going on here. The scribe who had devoted himself to the law of God recognizes that he cannot follow the God of the law on his own. He needs others to join him, to, to, to go with him. And so he gathers with others who will leave everything behind and make that journey with him to Jerusalem. And if we're going to live by the word, Emmaus, we must do the same. If we, like Ezra, are going to be devoted to the things of God, then we must invest our lives in a community where the things of God are kept at the center. This is what the church is supposed to be. And really, this goes to the heart of what explains Emmaus. So it makes us who we are as a church. I mean, it's, it, it's why we care about things like doctrine and creeds. It's why we give so much attention to things like church membership. That's why we give so much thought to the liturgy in our worship services. I mean, these things, these are rhythms and practices that shape our church's life that, to, to make us a word-saturated community. We also do this in the way that we love and serve others. We don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And I saw an awesome example of this over the past week. There are dozens of members of our church who gathered outside in the sweltering heat and humidity to serve at Backyard Kids Club. It was awesome. I mean, it was hard because it was hot, but it was awesome to see. If you served at Backyard Kids Club this past week, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. I am sincerely, sincerely grateful. Emmaus and its leaders are sincerely grateful for you. Because what you did is you demonstrated that devotion to God's word is not just about what we learn or hear or know. Devotion to God's word is also about how we love others and serve others. You guys displayed the gospel that we have gathered to declare today. And I count that as evidence of God's faithfulness to us. 
Speaking of God's faithfulness, here's the last rhythm of life I'll mention. I want to invite you to invigorate prayer and praise by meditating on God's faithfulness in your life. You know, one of the the, the best ways to train yourself to notice the hand of God in your future, in the future, is to take time and slow down to marvel at the hand of God in your past and in your present. Ezra provides a template for us to do this in verses 27 and 28. So telling what he does before he starts gathering people, before he organizes anything, before he takes the next step or even draws the next breath. Look at what Ezra says. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. In the midst of everything that's happening, in the midst of everything that is going on, Ezra stops long enough to ponder the ways that God is being faithful to his own. And this prompts Ezra to offer prayer and praise to God for his steadfast love. So today as we come to the Lord's table, I think it would be most fitting for us to do the exact same thing. As you make your way down this aisle on this side of the room, starting in the front row, and you come to the table over here, I want to invite you to ponder God's faithfulness to you personally. You know, it can be so easy to be preoccupied and fixated on what is going wrong in your life right now. So why not take this chance today to be preoccupied and fixated on what has gone supremely right in your life? Formerly, you did not have eyes to see the good hand of your God because you were blinded by your sin. You were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. You were unable to lift your eyes past your own depraved compulsions. But God has sent a man. Not just any man. He has sent the God man who has power to open the eyes of the blind. He has power to raise dead people from the grave. So now because of him, because of this man, you are alive and the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. Your God has granted you the gift of being able to look past yourself and to see the glory and the beauty of who he is and what he has done. You now live with eyes wide open, Christian, and you are able to see that the good hand of your God bears a scar because it bled. It was pierced for your transgressions. That hand was nailed to a criminal's cross. I mean, what more evidence do you need in order to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your God is faithful? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not be faithful in everything else? And this bread and this cup bear witness to that fact. So the invitation to all who believe today is take, eat this bread. This is the body of the Lord broken for you. And this cup is for you also. Drink of it. All who will come to the table, for this is the new covenant in his blood. This invitation is for anyone who has faith. But if you do not have faith today, we ask you not to come. Instead of coming to the table, we ask you, believe in the one who bled and died for sin. Abandon the way you've been living and cast yourself entirely upon his mercy. And I promise you that you will find your life resting firmly under his mighty hand. For those of us who will come, would you guys pray with me?
and then we'll approach the table. Lord, we take this moment to fully recognize or more fully recognize your faithfulness to us. We ask that through the work of your spirit, you'd cause the realization of your faithfulness to land upon us in a fresh way today. As we come to your table, grant that we might come calling to mind the ways that your hand has been on us, starting with the cross, starting with the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. And help us to behold that broken body and that shed blood and say with Ezra today, blessed be the Lord. That is our right and true response to your gospel word in this moment. We thank you that what you've spoken is power to impart light and life to us as we trust in Jesus because he's the light and life of men. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Church, come to the feast. Jesus is waiting for you.